0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. George Holiday was awakened just before 1 a.m. by the sound of a helicopter outside his Los Angeles apartment. He went onto the balcony to see what was going on. The light from the helicopter illuminated a disturbing scene. Two dozen members of the LAPD were gathered around a man lying on the ground beside a parked car. Four other officers were kicking and hitting the man with batons. The 31-year-old plumber ran back into his apartment and grabbed his new Sony Handycam video camera, and he documented the vicious beating of the unarmed black man. That recording helped spark one of the most intense and violent periods of civil unrest in U.S. history. But it wasn't the only spark. South Central L.A. was already an open tinderbox waiting to be lit. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on this episode of History of the 90s, we look back at the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Just after midnight on March 3rd, 1991, Rodney King and his friends Bryant Allen and Freddie Helms were in King's 1987 Hyundai XL, heading west on the Foothill Freeway in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. The three had spent the night drinking and smoking weed while watching basketball. At about 12.30 a.m., officers Tim and Melanie Singer, a husband and wife team from the California Highway Patrol, noticed King's car speeding on the freeway. They attempted to pull him over, but King refused to stop. The 25-year-old unemployed construction worker later admitted he tried to outrun the cops because he was on parole for a robbery conviction and didn't want to return to prison. King left the freeway near Lakeview Terrace, and the high-speed pursuit continued through residential streets for about 15 minutes. By this point, several police cars and a police helicopter had joined in the chase and officers were eventually able to corner King's car, forcing him to a stop. Among the first Los Angeles police officers to arrive were Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, and Theodore Brezino. After coming to a stop, King's two passengers were asked to exit the vehicle. Both claimed they were manhandled and threatened. King initially remained in the car, refusing to come out. When he finally emerged, Stacy Kuhn, the ranking officer, ordered the other LAPD officers at the scene to subdue and handcuff King using a technique called a swarm. That's where multiple officers grab a suspect to overcome potential resistance quickly. At this point, George Holliday, the amateur videographer, was filming as King was tasered, kicked, and hit 56 times with solid aluminum batons. He was left with a fractured skull, broken bones in his face and leg, shattered teeth, and permanent brain damage. The shaky video is hard to watch. It shows King repeatedly trying to get off the ground, only to be attacked with a torrent of baton blows. When King finally rolled onto his stomach and lay motionless, Officer Brasigno stepped on his back or neck. Then Powell and Wind began hitting King again with their batons. Wind kicked him in the neck six times. King said that as police were beating him, they kept saying, What's up? What's up, killer? How you feel now, killer? So this beating happened on March 3rd, 1991. But the world didn't find out about it until the evening of March 5th. That's because George Holliday didn't know what to do with the videotape. Of course, he couldn't just upload it to social media or YouTube. Holliday told some friends. They didn't think it was a big deal. He called the local police station, and they weren't interested in talking to him. But the tape and what happened that night nagged at Holliday, so he called local TV station KTLA and told them about the recording. Let's just say they were more than a little interested. So that night on the 10 o'clock news, the world saw what had been bothering Holiday. KTLA played the grainy recording, and almost immediately, Holiday's phone started ringing off the hook. Other news organizations wanted to interview him or get a copy of the tape. KTLA also called Holiday and offered to pay $500 if they could hold on to the tape for a couple of days. He agreed. The raw footage of King's beating was shown over and over on television. It stunned the nation and permanently seared the graphic images of the assault in our minds. A New York Times article following the incident said the King beating immediately became one of the most visible uses of undue force by police in American history. And it put the issue of police brutality on the national agenda. But Brenda Stevenson, a professor of history and African-American studies at UCLA, says for the people of South Central L.A., the video was in no way surprising. The LAPD had a really notorious, quite
1: notorious reputation in the Black community for being very oppressive, for over-surveillance, for violence, for not paying close attention to the rights of African-Americans or uh, Latinx peoples um, as well. And so very few people were shocked to see the videotape, although it was something new. You didn't see a lot of videotaping of police activity at the time. People knew these things happened, but they really had the opportunity, if they were not present at the time, to actually see it.
0: In the early 90s, approximately 50% of the population in South Central LA, which is now known as South LA, was black. Professor Stevenson, who is an expert on race and urban society, says hostile relations with the LAPD wasn't the only issue at the time for people living in the community.
1: Uh, Los Angeles, particularly South Central Los Angeles, had been deindustrialized. That is, those jobs, factory jobs that black people and Latinx people had really um, depended upon to move them into the middle class had disappeared over, and were disappearing rapidly. There were also, at the same time, lots of problems with gangs. Gangs were fairly notorious um, in Los Angeles at the time, and there was a lot of gang activity. There also was the um, crack epidemic, which was wreaking havoc in South Central at the time. And a lot of people don't know this, but that um, one of the early sites of crack production was actually South Los Angeles. And so uh, crack was on the ground very early on in the crack epidemic in South Los Angeles. And it really was devastating the community.
0: Adding to the economic and social issues in the area, there had also been long-running tensions in South Central between the Korean and African American communities. Since 1965, when the Asian Exclusion Act was abolished, Los Angeles had boasted the largest Korean immigrant community in the United States. Many Korean immigrants came to South Central and bought up cheap properties, gas stations, liquor stores, and grocery stores in what was once traditionally black neighborhoods. In fact, by the early 90s, two thirds of all businesses in South Central were owned by Koreans.
1: There was a lot of tension on the street between Korean and Korean Americans, and shopkeepers, and black customers and Latinx customers as well, because there was a sense that they were being displaced in the economy by shopkeepers. The shopkeepers, they said we're not hiring them, they were disrespectful to them when they came into the shop, etc. On the other side, shopkeepers would say that customers would come into the shop, they would burglarize their shops. they would be threatening to them. There was some African-Americans had been killed in various shops, some Korean-Americans had been killed by African-Americans in various shops. There was a lot of tension that was going on.
0: So what happened 13 days after the Rodney King beating was another flashpoint for African-Americans in South Central L.A. On the morning of Sunday, March 16, 1991, 15-year-old Latasha Harlins went to Empire Liquor Market and Deli on South Figaro Street near her home in South Central L.A. The store was owned by Korean immigrant Billy Hong Ki-do and his wife Soon Ja-do. Harlan's was there to buy orange juice.
1: So she walks into the shop. She gets, goes into the refrigerated cases. She pulls out the orange juice and she puts it in her backpack, which is she has on her back at the time. It is sticking out the top. She has the two dollars. The orange juice was, was valued at one seventy nine, and she has two dollars in her hand. She approaches the counter to purchase the orange juice.
0: Soonja Du was behind the counter. She assumed that Harlan's was stealing the juice. And because there was a language barrier, the 51-year-old woman was unable to understand when Harlan's tried to explain that she was planning to pay for it. Du grabbed Harlan's by the sleeve and yanked her across the counter, trying to grab the backpack. Harlan's fought back. She punched Du in the face four times and knocked her down.
1: So Tasha decides to give it up and just, she places the orange juice back on the counter, it's fallen out of her, onto um, the floor by that time, and she puts it on the counter, and she turns around and walks away, and Mrs. Stewart at that time, who has fallen down behind the counter in the physical altercation that they're having, stands up with a gun in her hand, and she shoots, and Latasha is shot in the back of the head, and dies before the ambulance actually arrives for her.
0: When police arrived on the scene, they found the 15-year-old was clutching two $1 bills in her left hand. The shooting of Harlan's sent shockwaves through Southern California. An innocent 15-year-old girl gunned down around the corner from her home while trying to buy orange juice. Immediately, community activist Danny Bakewell organized a protest outside the Empire Liquor Market in Delhi. He posted a sign that read closed for murder and disrespect of black people. And he pledged that any business found to be disrespectful to black people would be forced to shut down. Tensions mounted when the grainy surveillance video of the shooting was released a few days after Harlan's died. It clearly showed the shopkeeper shooting the teenager in the head after she puts the orange juice on the counter and turns to walk away. Over the next several months, Bakewell's group, the Brotherhood Crusade, organized a series of boycotts of Korean-owned liquor and grocery stores whose owners or employees had treated black people with disrespect. The Brotherhood Crusade also circulated a list of guidelines regarding the treatment of black customers. This further inflamed tensions between the Korean and African-American communities and kept this story in the news up until the trial of Soon-Ja-Doo in the fall of 1991. During that two-week trial, Dew's lawyers claimed that the shopkeeper acted in self-defense and maintained she committed no crime because the shooting was accidental. The prosecution, on the other hand, pushed for second-degree murder and portrayed Dew as the aggressor who was grossly negligent and irresponsible for picking up a gun when she knew nothing about firearms." After four days of deliberations, the jury convicted Dew of voluntary manslaughter. The crime carries a penalty of up to 16 years in prison, and many thought that the shopkeeper would face the maximum punishment. But that's not what happened. Instead, Judge Joyce Carlin, who said she believed Dew was under extreme provocation and duress and would probably never commit a crime again, sentenced the shopkeeper to five years probation. 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. Dew served no jail time for the death of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins. It was one of the most lenient sentences handed down for a gun-related crime in Los Angeles County that year. And it led to outrage inside and outside South Central, as many wondered, how could someone gun down a child and not be held to account?
1: This notion of that black people uh, and black children in particular are not protected, um, can be a victim, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an open store for African-Americans. It's something that leads back to every aspect of our history in this country. Every generation has people that they can speak to that lost their lives in this kind of circumstance. And so was, there was no justice remedy um, in their case.
0: Latasha's family and Danny Bakewell's group lobbied for the district attorney to appeal the sentence, but that too ended in disappointment. On April 21, 1992, a state appeals court upheld the sentence. Again, the community was outraged, and the anger that for now simmered under the surface came to a full boil just a week later when another jury issued its own shocking decision. On April 28, 1992, four officers charged in the beating of Rodney King were found not guilty. Sergeant Stacy Kuhn and officers Lawrence Powell, Theodore Brezino, and Timothy Wind had faced a number of charges, including assault with a deadly weapon, excessive use of force as a police officer, filing a false report, and acting as an accessory after the fact. At the time, all four men were identified as white, But Brasino is in fact of Latino heritage. Before their trial, a judge moved the high profile proceedings out of the Los Angeles area to a predominantly white area of Simi Valley in an effort to avoid pretrial publicity and to have an impartial jury. Out of the 12 jurors selected, only two were persons of color, including one Latino and an Asian American. In an already racially charged case, the jury did not include a single black person. During the seven weeks of detailed testimony, jurors studied the 81-second amateur video recorded by George Holliday that showed the officers delivering repeated baton blows and kicks as King rolled on the ground. Defense lawyers repeatedly referred to what they called the Thin Blue Line, and the role the police force had in protecting society from, quote, the likes of Rodney King. The prosecution, for its part, chose not to call Rodney King to the stand as a witness. And that decision would come back to haunt them. At 3 p.m. on April 28, 1992, the jury returned with its decision. The four officers were not guilty. They were acquitted on all but one charge. Jurors were unable to come to a unanimous decision on the excessive force charge against Powell, and a mistrial was declared on that one particular charge. Despite the graphic videotaped evidence, the jury concluded that the officers had not broken any laws when they clubbed and kicked Rodney King. They were not convinced the video told the entire story of what happened. One juror, who was interviewed by NBC's Ted Koppel, said that the video was weakened as a piece of evidence because King didn't testify for the prosecution. The juror also criticized the video as unsteady and out of focus and questioned the seriousness of King's injuries. The juror said, quote, A lot of those blows when you watch them in slow motion were not connecting. Those batons are heavy, but when you looked at King's body three days after the incident, not much damage was done. After the verdict, loud arguments broke out outside the courthouse. Stones were thrown at Powell as he left the building, and angry groups of shouting spectators also confronted Wind and Coon. Immediately after the verdicts, an unusually impassioned Mayor Bradley appeared on television, first to denounce the jury's decision then to appeal for calm. Bradley was visibly angry, as he said, "'Today the jury told the world that what we all saw with our own eyes was not a crime. My friends, I am here to tell the jury our eyes did not deceive us. We will not tolerate the savage beating of our citizens by a few renegade cops.'" Bradley went on to urge citizens to express their profound outrage and anger in ways that bring honour to themselves and their community. Despite the mayor's plea, crowds gathered at police headquarters in City Hall, where they set a small fire in the lobby. By 6 p.m., three hours after the verdict... Fury over the acquittal in the Rodney King case and the injustice in the Latasha Harlan's death, along with years of racial and economic inequality, spilled onto the streets of South Central Los Angeles. And at the epicenter was the intersection of Florence and Normandy. Here's a timeline of what happened on that afternoon in April 1992. As I mentioned earlier, the verdict was handed down at 3 p.m. At 4.17, five young black males made a beer run to the Payless Liquor and Delhi, the Korean-owned stores located just three blocks west of Normandy. The youths each scooped up four or five bottles of malt liquor and walked toward the entrance. Their path was blocked by the shop owner's son, David Lee. One of the youths struck Lee in the head with a bottle and two others hurled bottles at the glass door of the store, shattering it. One yelled, this is for Rodney King. From behind the bulletproof counter, Lee's father Samuel pushed a silent alarm button that alerted the nearby police station of the robbery. With that act, one of the deadliest urban riots in the nation's history had begun. Hundreds of people filled with fury and disbelief over the acquittal gathered at the corner of Florence and Normandy. They threw rocks and bottles at cars that passed through the busy intersection. If a car stopped, a mob of mostly young men ran onto the road specifically targeting white and Korean motorists. Police received their first call from the intersection just after five o'clock. When they arrived on the scene at 5.23, they found a young black man swinging an aluminum baseball bat at the windshield of a Cadillac with two white men inside. Black youths cheered on the bat wielder, who didn't immediately stop at the sight of the police car. Officers arrested the young man with the baseball bat, but by now a crowd had gathered and there was a palpable mood change. People began chanting Rodney King's name. As other patrol cars arrived on the scene, they were showered with rocks and bottles. Officers were forced to call for backup, and within five minutes, 18 police cars and more than 30 officers were at the intersection. Officers tried to make arrests, but as they did, more and more people spilled onto the streets. It was chaos. Bottles flew everywhere. By now, helicopters from local TV stations were circling overhead. Soon, the 30 or so officers were outnumbered by a crowd of about 200. Someone in the crowd yelled, "Cops going to die tonight!" Someone else said, "It's Oozy time." When Lieutenant Michael Moulin, the commanding officer, arrived on the scene, he saw his officers were being pelted with concrete, bricks, and boards. They were totally unprepared. They had no helmets, bulletproof vests, or tear gas. It was completely out of control. Lieutenant Mullen ordered a pullout at 5:43 p.m. Officers on the scene have said they thought it would be a short pullout to regroup before coming back to take control of the area. But that's not what happened. Police didn't return to the scene for 3 hours. And while they were gone, all hell broke loose. Meantime, Police Chief Daryl Gates was on his way to a political fundraiser in Brentwood, 45 minutes away. And when he learned of a major incident at Florence and Normandy, Gates didn't change his plans. Before he left, the chief told reporters that his department was prepared to cope with any disturbance created by the not guilty verdicts. It would later be reported that the city was not adequately prepared. It might seem hard to believe but there was no anticipation of or official plan created by the LAPD to deal with any major social unrest caused by the verdict. After police pulled out of Normandy and Florence, a growing mob beat and robbed unsuspecting motorists as they crossed through the intersection. A few young men directed traffic, allowing Black people to proceed unharmed, while all others became targets as stones and debris rained upon them from the crowd. Most of the early victims of the mob were Latinos and Asian Americans. The helicopter pilot, who two years later would also capture O.J. Simpson's Bronco chase, was flying overhead on this day. At 6.46 p.m., she captured 36-year-old truck driver Reginald Denny as he entered the intersection in his 18-wheeler, hauling 27 tons of sand from a quarry just outside of Los Angeles. Radio and television stations were warning motorists to stay away from the area. But Denny wasn't listening to the news that evening. The first sign of trouble was when he saw people taking items from a truck in front of him. He briefly considered making a U-turn, but his truck lacked power steering, so a U-turn would have been hard to pull off. Since he knew his cargo was of no value to looters, Denny reasoned he could, in his words, tiptoe across the intersection and get on down the road. But then he heard people shouting at him to stop. Rocks suddenly flew through his window. Denny doesn't remember what happened next... But Zoe Tur, hovering overhead, captured the brutal scene and broadcast it live to television viewers around the nation and beyond. We watched as Denny slowly entered the intersection. A young man yanked open the door of his cab and allowed others to pull the slightly built truck driver onto the street.
2: They're pulling the driver out of the van and they're kicking the driver and beating the driver. The driver's only a mistake was entering this area, he's been kicked in the head, he's laying in the street. Okay, this is it. Terrible, terrible pictures. This is what, all this guy did was enter this area. That's his only crime. Drivers of automobiles and trucks that enter this area can expect to, uh, oh, look at that terrible, and there's no police presence down here.
0: They will not- a young man held Denny's head down with his foot while someone else kicked him in the stomach. Then a man grabbed a five-pound piece of medical equipment that had been removed from the truck and hurled it at Denny's head and then hit him three times with a claw hammer. The most damaging blow was administered by 19-year-old Damien Williams, who at point-blank range hurled a slab of concrete at Denny's head, hitting him on the right temple. Williams did a victory dance over the unconscious man and flashed the sign of the eight-tray gangster Crips and gleefully pointed out Denny's crumpled figure to the news helicopter pilot still hovering above. Gang member Anthony Brown spit on Denny and walked away with Williams, leaving the truck driver bleeding and unconscious in the street. Not a single police officer was in sight. Denny was eventually rescued by four strangers, two men and two women, who emerged from the crowd and drove his 18-wheeler to safety. Bobby Greens, Titus Murphy, Terry Barnett, and Leah Ewell, four black friends who didn't know Denny, watched on television as he was dragged from his truck and beaten. They piled into a car, reached the intersection in less than 15 minutes, and drove Denny to the hospital, where doctors said their prompt action probably saved his life. This act of bravery was not the only one that day. Donald Jones, an off-duty firefighter, rescued a Chinese man who had been pulled from his Ford Fiesta and beaten. Benny Newton, an ex-convict who ran an inner-city ministry, threw himself across the unconscious body of a Latino man as he was being beaten. And he said, kill him and you have to kill me too. Unfortunately, most of the news coverage focused on the violence, which is why you probably have never heard about these acts of bravery. With no police presence, the mob spread beyond Normandy and Florence. By 8 p.m., complete anarchy spread across south-central L.A. and other parts of the city. Liquor stores, grocery stores, retail shops, and fast food restaurants were looted, destroyed, and torched, with at least 150 fires burning across the city the smoke in the air was so thick that flights heading into Los Angeles airport had to be rerouted. By nine o'clock, Mayor Bradley called a state of emergency and California Governor Pete Wilson ordered 2,000 National Guard Reserve soldiers to the area. Exit ramps from the highways in the area were closed to prevent motorists from wandering into the path of violence. And just after midnight, a sunset to sunrise curfew was put in place for South Central L.A., And this also prohibited the sale of ammunition and the sale of gasoline, except for vehicles. The measures didn't help, though. The rampage continued through the streets as vehicles were overturned and burned. Windows were smashed and stores were tagged with graffiti.
1: When the morning sun rose over Los Angeles, it only illuminated the ugliness. The results of the violence that erupted in California's biggest city in the aftermath of the Rodney King verdict but LA's mayor said the city would not let anarchy prevail. And they chose as an opportunity to steal, to loot, to uh, vandalize, and indeed to kill. That we cannot and will not tolerate. Firefighters were simply overwhelmed. They raced from one hot spot to another, sometimes under gunfire.
0: The unrest spilled into the next day and forced the city to shut down transit, schools, government services, and most workplaces. The Los Angeles Dodgers and Clippers both postponed upcoming games. By late afternoon on April 29th, the day after the verdicts, 2,000 National Guard troops took up positions in hotspots around the city, and the dawn to dusk curfew was extended to cover the entire city of Los Angeles.
2: All night, National Guard troops and police patrolled to enforce the curfew. All this only hours after some shopkeepers, this one Korean, fought off looters. Many Koreans suffered total losses. Blacks targeted their stores with a vengeance. Some black businesses nearby, labeled as black-owned, escaped damage, but even black shop owners were struck.
0: As the riots raged on, the man whose name would be forever linked to the worst riding in US history stepped into the spotlight again. At 2:45 on Friday, May 1st, the third day of riding, hundreds of reporters gathered outside the office of a Beverly Hills lawyer to hear Rodney King make a public statement. He wore a blue sweater, blue shirt, blue tie, and blue slacks as he stepped into the swarm of reporters. Nervous and barely audible, his voice lost at times to the blasting sounds of a helicopter overhead. King appealed for peace.
3: I just want to say, you know, can we can we all get along? Can we can we get along? Um, can we stop making it making it horrible for for the for the older people and the, and, the, and the and the kids and. I mean, we've got enough smog here in Los Angeles, um, let alone to uh, de- deal with the uh, setting these fires and, and things. It's, it's, it's just not right.
0: King suffered brain damage from the police beating, and he struggled to find the words to describe how he was feeling. But it was pretty clear that he wanted the violence to stop.
3: I can understand the, the, the first upset for the first two hours after the verdict but uh to go on to keep going on like like this and to see the security guard shot on the on the ground it um, it's it's uh it's just not right it's just not right because those people are, are, will never go home to to their families again and uh, I mean, Please, we can, we can get along here. We, we all can get along. We just got to, gotta you know, I mean, we're all stuck here for a while. Let's, you know, let's, let's, let's try to work it out. Let's try to beat it, you know. Let's try and work it out.
0: Despite King's appeal for the violence to stop, looting and arsons continued through the weekend. It wasn't until Monday, May 4th, six days after the verdicts, that the city started to return to normal. Nervous Los Angeles residents went back to work and school, with their street corners still being guarded by rifle-toting soldiers. The widespread rioting killed more than 50 people and injured thousands of others. Thousands of buildings throughout the city were damaged or totally destroyed, causing more than a billion dollars in damages. A billion dollars. About half of it was sustained by Korean-owned businesses. And when it was all over, almost 12,000 people had been arrested. If riots are the language of the unheard, as stated by Dr. Martin Luther King, the 1992 LA riots told the world loud and clear that something was broken and needed desperately to be fixed. As I said earlier, the LAPD and Chief Gates were completely caught unprepared for what happened in April 1992 which seems almost ridiculous. Remember, South Central had been on edge since March 1991 when the Rodney King videotape was first televised. Plus, the killing and non-sentencing in the Latasha Harlins case added fuel to the fire. And the racial unrest and discontent with police in South Central wasn't new. In fact, young Black hip-hop artists from the area had been sounding off for years... In N.W.A.'s 1988 song F. The Police, the Compton-based rap group literally took the L.A.P.D. to court in their lyrics. And Ice Cube prophesied in no uncertain terms that an L.A. riot was inevitable in his 1991 album Death Certificate, particularly with the songs A Bird in the Hand, I Want to Kill Sam, and Black Korea, which references Latasha Harlins. Despite the many red flags, in November 1992, the Blue Ribbon Commission that investigated the L.A. riots found there was no meaningful preparation for the trouble that followed the verdicts. The commission, which was headed by former FBI and CIA director William Webster, concluded there was no citywide planning effort, no specific coordination with county, state and federal authorities, And indeed, no event-specific planning within the LAPD itself. 28 years later, another interaction between police officers and a Black man threw the issue of police brutality back into the spotlight. After the death of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, protests against police brutality and anti-Black racism spread across the United States and the world and many were reminded of the 1992 Los Angeles riots. The parallels seemed obvious, looting and destruction fueled by anger over police abuses. But according to Brenda Stevenson, there is a stark difference between 1992 and
1: 2020. At the time of 1992, it was just called a riot and criminal behavior, that was it. This time, there's a more nuanced and balanced way of looking at it. It is seen as a social justice initiative. There's a, a big, a bigger attempt as well not to have looting and not to have, you know, buildings burned.
0: Another big change, the mayhem in 92 was largely limited to the historically Black community of South Los Angeles and in Koreatown. In 2020, organizers say they deliberately brought their anger to those they believe need to hear it the most, the white and the wealthy. When Black Lives Matter protests happened in Los Angeles, they didn't happen just in South Central. The protests went right through West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. Something that didn't change, though, was the media's failure to connect that what was happening was centered on issues of systemic racial and economic justice. The focus, once again, was the looting.
2: I think there will always be a focus on it. I think local news in particular focuses far too much on it because it is a present narrative. And I mean, it's something that has a tremendous amount of conflict in it, especially if they have a helicopter, you know, that is up and is showing people doing these things. It's action. It's, uh, it's exciting. It's something that they believe makes good television, so they pay an inordinate amount of attention to it.
0: That's Ryan Gaddis. He's an author who lives in Los Angeles and spent many years researching the 1992 riots for his novel, All Involved. He says the focus on looting during civil unrest by the media and others misses the point.
2: If there are certain companies, you know, media in particular, who would much rather focus on looting than than the broader issue, then I think it's really to their detriment and to the detriment of, of the United States in general that we're not having a slightly more important conversation about how we can stop this from happening ever again, as opposed to once again happening on a cycle.
0: Just as the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 were about more than the death of George Floyd, the L.A. riots were about more than the beating of Rodney King and the death of Latasha Harlins.
2: These are both incidents that are part of a much larger scheme. And they all point to, you know, really the most difficult thing, which is justice is lacking. The system is unable to provide understandable, healing justice especially for the Black community in Los Angeles.
0: Remember, the riots in L.A. didn't happen after Rodney King was beaten or Latasha Harlins was killed. The riots happened after Harlins' killer, soon doo received a slap on the wrist and the police officers who brutally beat King were found not guilty. The breaking point was the failure of the system to provide justice. You might not know this because it didn't get the same amount of media attention, but the four officers acquitted in the Rodney King case were actually tried again in 1993, this time in a federal court on charges they violated King's civil rights. Sergeant Stacy Kuhn and Officer Lawrence Powell were found guilty and sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Officer Theodore Brazino and former Officer Timothy Wind were acquitted. In the years that followed his brutal beating, Rodney King was awarded $3.8 million in damages from the city of Los Angeles. But his life was a roller coaster of drug and alcohol abuse, multiple arrests, and unwanted celebrity. Sadly, in June 2012, he drowned in a pool at his home in Rialto, California. An autopsy concluded that King was in a state of drug and alcohol-induced delirium and either fell or jumped into the swimming pool. He was 47 years old. Ronnie King's name will always be synonymous with police brutality and the 1992 riots. Unlike Latasha Harlins, who is often forgotten outside of South LA. You may not have heard of Latasha, but her name is Lore in South Central. She has been immortalized in rap, song, theater, protest, film, and blogs, and increasingly invoked as one of the iconic examples of injustice toward Black women that has led to the Say Her Name movement. In addition to being memorialized by Ice Cube in Black Korea, the 15-year-old was remembered in a number of iconic songs by Tupac Shakur, including 1993's Something to Die For, which included these words... Latasha Harlan's remember that name, because a bottle of juice ain't something to die for. As for the LAPD, well, at the time of this recording, the Black Lives Matter movement and their efforts to defund police seemed to be gaining traction. Prior to the protests and pressure from Los Angeles residents, the mayor proposed to spend 54% of the city's general budget on police. Since the latest protests and community engagements, it's been announced that there will be a proposed $150 million cut to the LAPD budget and $250 million reinvestment in communities of color. The Rodney King case, like the George Floyd case and many others, have shown the serious issues with anti-Blackness and systemic racism in many institutions, including police. At the time of this recording... Black Lives Matter peaceful protests continue to be organized across the world, even if the media isn't reporting them as much. Thanks for listening to this look back at the 1992 Los Angeles riots and the stories of some of the people whose lives intersected with one of America's deadliest race riots. Please check out the show notes for links to my guest, Professor Brenda Stevenson. She has written several books, including The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins, Justice, Gender, and the Origins of the LA Riots, as well as Ryan Gaddis. His novel about the riots is called All Involved. Let me know what you thought about this episode. I would love to hear from you. You can always reach me through Twitter at 1990sHistory. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, we'd really love it if you could leave us a nice review and rating. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. The show is hosted and co written by me, Kathy Kanzora, Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more history of the 90s.